Hello, and welcome to episode 78 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvador Babonis, and joining me today is Harry Kazianis, Senior Director of Korean Studies at the Center for the National Interest in Washington, D.C. We'll be asking Harry about peace in our time or the latest round of nuclear brinksmanship from North Korea, whichever comes first. Harry Kazianis, how are you? Hey, Sal, how are you? Doing well. Look, let's cut to the chase. Is North Korea going to start a nuclear war over the holidays? No, I mean, talk about a, a totally different world. You know, it was two years ago when the North Koreans were, were promising to deliver a Christmas present to, to then President Donald Trump. And, you know, the whole world was petrified. Will North Korea test an ICBM or, you know, maybe detonate a new hydrogen bomb or something like that? We're in a completely different world when it comes to North Korea. Um, to be very honest, Sal, I'm actually more concerned about North Korean regime collapse and North Korean regime stability as opposed to you know, nuclear weapons tests, ICBM tests. Um, you know, I don't think we're in a world right now where the North Koreans would ever contemplate anything even like that right now. You know, we've seen a lot of small range, you know, short-range missile tests, cruise missiles, you know, supposed hypersonic weapons tests you know, small potatoes compared to what they were doing back in 2017. Um, you know, because of the pandemic, the North Koreans really are, are, are much more inward focused. They really are the hermit kingdom now. Um, trade with China, for example, is down something like 98%. You know, we're constantly worried about food shortages. I hear a lot of rumors about some of the, the really, really rural North Korean villages that are much closer to the Chinese border, having a lot of starvation problems. Um, so things are really, they're really awful in North Korea right now. I don't think we realize how bad it is. It doesn't really get to the news cycle anymore. It's really sad here in the United States, unless North Korea detonates a nuke or, you know, tests an ICBM that has the potential to hit the United States. Unfortunately, people just don't care that much anymore. So not worried about nuclear war, more worried about the state collapsing. And that's actually scarier, to be honest with you. Well, if North Korea were to collapse, what does quote unquote collapse mean? in the, that context? What would it mean for the peninsula, for people in North Korea, for reunification? What, what are the implications? I have a one word answer, hell. Um, you know, just thinking, just thinking that out loud just, you know, just puts shivers down my spine. Um, the very short answer, I mean, give you a scenario. Let's say somebody in the North Korean regime gets the idea that, you know, maybe they can cut a deal with the United States and or Seoul for some sort of reunification or, you know, a, a type of regime change. And let's say they try to, I don't know, assassinate Kim Jong-un and, you know, the state starts to fall apart with under all the pressures of COVID and, you know, not being able to deliver food. You know, the, the Kim regime has attacked a lot of the markets and capitalism that really dr actually drive North Korea now. Um, so let's just say the state collapses. There isn't a, a, a monumental civil war with nuclear weapons or chemical weapons or something like that. And things just fall apart. And the Kims run to China or something like that. The first thing you have to worry about, Sal, is, how do you feed 25 million starving North Koreans? I mean, that's a logistical nightmare that, I mean, you'd have to have the whole US Air Force start moving you know, C-130s into North Korea, which isn't exactly in the best of shape anyway. So you'd have to have an international effort to try and feed this population. Oh, and by the way, there's not a lot of infrastructure to do that. You know, The railroads are basically collapsed. Most of North Korea is actually dirt roads, to tell you the truth. So right on the offset, you'd have to figure out how to feed these people. Then the next thing to worry about, which actually probably is even scarier, 
is how do you secure all the nuclear weapons, the chemical weapons, the biological weapons, the tens of thousands of scientists and personnel that have knowledge of North Korea's WMD programs? How do you secure the nuclear weapons? Uh, the fissile material that's at Yongbyon and all these secret nuclear plants. Um, we could do a whole show on this, to be honest with you, but really my biggest fear when it comes to North Korea, it's not nuclear war or you know, the breakdown of nuclear deterrence or something like that. I, I don't think that's gonna happen. But what I do worry about is this is a state that never really should have survived the end of the Cold War. Um, you know, the Kim regime went on their quote unquote arduous march in the 1990s where something like 20% of their population died and they made it through that. But how many hits can the Kim regime actually take? I mean, th their foreign exchange reserves are, are probably almost bled dry. Uh, they're probably running out of food. You hear all these different problems of, you know, gas price fluctuations, corn price fluctuations changing. There's a lot of problems in North Korea. So I think we have to think about collapse and we have to have plans on the table if it were to happen. So I hope it never does, but it's, it's the nightmare scenario. Well, it's a bit odd to hear an American analyst saying he hopes North Korea never collapses. <laughs> but uh, but if you're worried, <laughs> but if you're worried, I imagine the South Koreans must be even more concerned. Now, I know there's an election coming up in March. President Moon Jae-in uh, has, well, previously reached out to North Korea to try to resolve the lingering, you know, quote unquote, state of war on the Korean peninsula since 1952. How do how are North Korean relations and North Korea's prospects playing out in the upcoming election in South Korea? I mean, there's a huge debate between you know the progressives and conservatives as usual. I mean, there's there's marches on the street. I mean, it's 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 tough as as usual. Um, I mean, the progressive stance right now is pretty much in line with what Moon Jae-in has done, which is to try and get the North Koreans to agree to some sort of peace declaration. A more of a political dark declaration, not a treaty. They know the United States Senate would never pass that, but something that recognizes that the state of war on the Korean Peninsula after all these years is over. I personally think that's a, a, a good idea. Um, my conservative colleagues think that's, you know, appeasement, you know, that's that's a terrible idea because of the fact that, you know, you're, you're giving the North Koreans something as a you know, and we're not getting any denuclearization in return, you know, the, the standard old arguments that neocons have offered forever now. Um, the Moon government hasn't had a lot of progress in that. And I'm, I'm sad to say that because I think Moon Jae-in has tried everything he possibly can to draw the North Koreans to the bargaining table, essentially put his whole five-year presidency on the line to try and get this done. Um, irregardless if you don't like the man's progressive politics or not, you have to give him a lot of credit for literally putting it all on the line to try and do this. Um, irregardless of whatever legacy or, or anything he tried to build, I can't see any US politician ever trying to do something like that ever. So I give him a lot of credit for that. Um, really right now what's happening though, Sal, is that the South Korean government is an all out offensive on all fronts to try and get the North Koreans to agree to some sort of peace declaration. They're doing a lot of lobbying here in Washington right now. There's a lot of meetings with senior US officials or at least there were. Um, a lot of South Korean diplomats have been coming in and out to Washington to try and get something done. There's actually been a lot of coverage in political magazine on this recently. Um, but it remains to be seen if the Biden administration is willing. I mean, they've got a lot of other problems right now. North Korea is probably somewhere between eight and 11 on their list of priorities, which means it's not. And the North Koreans are very insular right now. I don't think they're in a position where they want to deal or negotiate with anybody when they know they're in such a weakened state. 
You know, they're worrying about regime survival. You know, Kim Jong-un talking about being on his own arduous march. Um, I don't think they're very into a peace declaration right now, but you never know. I, I mean, th there is some advantages for Kim to try and do that. I mean, for example, Kim would be the only North Korean leader to make peace with the United States. And that could be a powerful narrative to him if he really is thinking about investing less in nuclear weapons and his military capabilities. I mean, keep in mind the North Korean economy, 20% of its GDP goes to the military, which is obviously a lot. Um, so it would loosen up some resources for Kim to try and do some economic modernization, whether some sort of unique North Korean model, Vietnamese, Chinese. Um, but over the long term, the North Koreans are going to have to make some very tough decisions. And a peace declaration could be a first step towards that. But I, I, I would love to see it happen, but I'm, I am skeptical. I'm not surprised to hear that with an election coming up, the Moon administration is doubling down on its efforts to get some kind of peace declaration. But are they do they share your evaluation of the dire situation in North Korea? Are they doing on the ground planning for famine relief? Because after all, if there's a relief effort, it's not going to come from San Diego or Hawaii. It's got to come from Seoul. I mean, of course, the North Korean Unification Ministry obviously is, I mean, that's their sort of full-time role, at, you know, at the minister level, they're, they're full-time gaming this out. I've had many meetings with their officials over the years and under different administrations. They're very competent. They understand the stakes better than anybody, I think. So I think that's a really good thing. But let's face it, they would need tremendous amounts of international help if the, if the state collapsed. Um, they would need Chinese help specifically. I mean, the, the Chinese of, of besides the South Koreans would actually be in the biggest bind because, you know, you're not going to have millions of people heading south into the demilitarized zone, walking over, you know, minefields or something like that. They're going to be heading north. They're going to be going over the Yalu River. They're going to be trying to move into China where some of them, you know, have relatives and family members who have already illegally crossed into China. So they have some idea of where, you know, they would go. So the South Koreans not only would need to have the logistical support, the food, the resources, but they need to have some sort of international buy-in. And with the United States and China and loggerheads right now, trying to figure out what a you know, reunified Korean Peninsula would look like, I mean, that's just trying to figure out the humanitarian aspects and the, the socioeconomic aspects, the geopolitical aspects are, are scary in of itself. I mean, there's always talk about if the North Korean state collapsed, would the Chinese try to move in maybe you know, 50, 60 miles and try to create some sort of buffer? Um, how would the how would South Korea react to that? So it's the Moon administration, I think, irregardless of who comes into power, I think is trying to be as ready for this scenario as they can. But it's just like COVID-19, you know, you think you're ready for a pandemic, but then it slaps you in the face with reality. And sometimes that reality, it's, it's very hard to predict until it actually hits you in the face. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned Kim Jong-un several times and what would be a historic accomplishment for him to get a peace deal. But I wonder, is Kim Jong-un the person who's actually calling the shots in North Korea? Or is he now and maybe just a puppet for his little sister, Kim Yo-jong? Kim Yo-jong is very interesting. Um, she has a very similar background to her brother in that she did do a lot of schooling in Switzerland alongside him, um, obviously younger, so not the same classes, but had that exposure to somewhat of a, a Western lifestyle. Was there for a few years, then, then went back to North Korea, but she has some idea of, of, of Western culture in Switzerland. So she's, she's had that upbringing. 
Um, how much power she has is, is extremely debated. I have to be honest with you. Um, there will be some experts like myself who'd say she's a loyal right-hand man or woman, so to speak, um, you know, trying to be, I guess you could say that the media liaison, you know, when writing op-eds and putting them in, in, in North Korean outlets for the West to read about, you know, what they think about South Korea, the United States, sort of being the, the, the mouthpiece of the regime when it comes to that. How much actual power and influence she actually exerts, it's tough to know. They manage her image very carefully. If you look at a lot of the, the different photo ops and, and video that we get coming out of North Korean media, she's not always super close to her brother. A lot of times they'll have her in the background, maybe you know five or six seats away. There's always that leeriness to put her right next to her brother. So there's, Kim Jong-un himself is, is very, I think concerned about making her look like the exact heir apparent. I think it's clear she'd have to be the heir apparent. Only a Kim can run the Kim dynasty. So I don't care what people say that, oh, she's a woman, you know, North Korean polity could never accept that. That's crap. They, they would accept it because she would have the loyalty of the military. And also she has a lot of control of the, the different financial trickeries and cyber attacks that are going on. She's a big part of that. Um, there's a special office that actually controls that North Korea, and she's one of the top people in the leadership in that circle. So she knows where the, not only where the bones are buried, but she knows where the money is. And that, in any you know, political system, if, if you have the, the capital, you're in control. Um, but it's hard to know exactly if, you know, if Kim Jong-un is sick. I know there's all these rumors with his health you know, being an issue. Uh, you know, he lost a lot of weight recently. Uh, not too concerned about that stuff, because I'll be honest, He's actually copying what his father did in the 1990s. His father, when they went through the Idris March and a lot of people were starving, he actually made it a big point to say, you know, I'm only eating one meal a day with you. He actually downgraded his wardrobe and said he only had like one or two pairs of slacks and a shirt and you'd only be filmed and actually had photography in these only one or two or three pairs of shirts and slacks to show that he was in poverty with the North Korean people. So I think Kim Jong-un is actually mimicking that same sort of arduous march path, you know, maybe not, you know, not wearing a lot of the, you know, fancy clothes and, and slimming down to show that he's suffering as well. But hard to know how much power she has. She's in the leadership circle and she would take over if something happened to him. I know that much. Maybe Kim Jong-un was slimming down because he got a better doctor. He could certainly use a little slimming. Um, look, uh, we, we are a live show and uh, our one benefit of being a live show is that our audience often who are often more informed than I am can feed through questions. So we have questions waiting. We have Magter, Leanne, Benjamin, Matthew. Hello to all of you in the chat. I'm going to try to get to as many questions as I can. First question from Magter. Why are we assuming that North Korea will collapse given that it's in China's best interest to keep North Korea as a buffer state between themselves and the West? Would China ever let North Korea collapse? That's a great question. Um, it's, a difficult, it's difficult to answer that, Sal. And the reason I say that is because, yes, the Chinese subsidize their food, uh, their fuel, actually the only major pipeline that goes into North Korea to provide the vast bulk of their oil comes through China. We don't even know how much goes through it. We don't even know if it could be shut off due, due to economic sanctions. It really should be mostly shut off, but we can't even, we can't even verify that that's ever happened. But generally speaking, we know that Kim Jong-un himself has ordered that border closed. So there's very little trade that's happening between Pyongyang and Beijing right now, at least officially. Unofficially, from what I've heard, 
there is a lot of black market black market trade to bring in the necessary foods to keep what markets that are remaining open to feed what population that can actually afford the food. Um, so I don't think the Chinese right now would allow any sort of collapse. But if Kim Jong Un really cracked down, if he was afraid of Omicron, you know, if, if cases of COVID nineteen started really going up in North Korea, which it is in North Korea, I don't care what the North Koreans say, there is evidence in, in reporting to suggest that I think is pretty strong. Um, you know, I think the Chinese would try to intervene and, you know, potentially demand that that Kim Jong Un take food supplies in. But right now, the Chinese have been pretty hands off. Uh, they've let Kim pretty much control the show in North Korea. But let's be honest, if the Chinese pulled out all their support of North Korea, the North Korean state's over. It's dead. It only survives because China wants it to survive. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, there's there's a lot of rumors. If you go back to 2019, when I was talking about the um, the Christmas package that Kim Jong Un was going to deliver Donald Trump in terms of an ICBM test. There's a lot of rumors in Washington that the reason that didn't happen is because of direct Chinese pressure for it not to happen. So it's pretty clear the Chinese have a lot of control of what the North Koreans do, but difficult to say of how far they'll let Kim sort of go adrift from when their you know their orders are declared, so to speak. But I, it's difficult to know in this era of COVID, you know how bad things are in North Korea. I don't even think the Chinese might have a, a, a complete solid picture in that. Hmm. Benjamin has something of a deep geostrategic question for you. What is the likelihood that China will induce Russian and North Korean military action? That is supporting Russia to put pressure on Ukraine, supporting North Korea to put pressure on South Korea in order to exhaust or wear down the U.S. military in preparation for a potential invasion of Taiwan. That's, a, that's an interesting one. Let me answer it in a direct way. Um, there's been some good scholarship, if you go back to 2011, 2012, by a professor named William Martell. He used to be at the Fletcher School at Tufts. You know, at, at Tufts. Um, fortunately, he passed away. He was a good man. He was actually my mentor. Um, and he wrote a lot of different books, op-eds, essays on something called the totalitarian access. And what his argument essentially was was this that authoritarian states around the world in the coming years would align themselves a lot more, understanding that the United States would, and their allies would put a lot of pressure on them in terms of trying to invoke regime change, military pressure, economic pressure, and that obviously that these two very different forms of government clash in terms of their geostrategic interests, economic interests, so on and so forth. So anyway, to indirectly answer that question, I think there is a lot of evidence and a lot of direct evidence to suggest that all of these different authoritarian governments, whether we're talking about the North Koreans, the Chinese, the Russians, whoever you want to lump in there, the Syrians, Iranians, whoever, do loosely coordinate with one another if their goals are aligned. And, and a lot of times they are, to be honest with you. Um, you know, how directly those connections actually run, I mean, it's difficult to say. I mean, I think it's clear the Chinese and the Russians these days have a lot of interests in trying to push back against the United States. I think it's also very interesting that you have China pushing on Taiwan at the exact same time when the Russians have 175,000 troops, troops on the Ukrainian border, you know, having the whole world terrified that they're going to try and cleave off part of Ukraine. So I think there is potentially some loose coordination there. I don't think Vladimir Putin's on the phone with Xi Jinping saying, you know, you launch these, these, these planes at, at Taiwan now and I'll probe Ukraine here. Let's see how much we can sort of, in terms of concessions, get out of the United States or NATO. 
But I do think they are smart to realize that the more pressure they put together, the more concessions they can get on different things. So, you know, whether that continues in the months to years to come, it's tough to say. Um, just thinking about this very broadly, Sal, I would say that if the Chinese do consolidate their position in the Indo-Pacific, whether it's subjugate Taiwan to the point where you know, they're not worried about independence anymore and they're completely economically dependent on China, and let's say China ends up dominating the South China Sea in a way that they're happy with, we have to think in the next 20 or 30 years, they're gonna look north and start looking at Siberia and saying, hmm, you know, billions of barrels of oil, lots of iron ore, lots of natural gas, wouldn't that be a nice thing to sort of bring into our sphere of influence? You know, that might be almost like 1930s talk right now, but you know, world history does show that countries do think in those ways. So it's, it's interesting to see if long-term China and Russia can keep that you know, loose alliance going, but if China consolidates position in the Indo-Pacific, I don't think so. So longer answer to maybe the question, but longer term thoughts in that, if you will. Harry, you've written in your column for Fox News that Joe Biden's, quote, strategic patience policy is, quote, nothing more than a sanitized version of appeasement. Yet it sounds from what you're saying today that you're pretty much on board with the idea of not pressuring North Korea too much. It can't take much more pressure. A collapse would be worse than anything else. So have you changed your thinking on the Biden administration's approach to Korea? Let me let you know, unfortunately, with those, I, I love writing opinion pieces, Sal, but I will tell you, unfortunately, the word counts really constrain the thought. So let me give you a longer answer. Um, the problem I have with the Biden administration is that they don't care about the situation on the Korean Peninsula. And I I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. They have a lot of other bigger issues to deal with right now. I mean, if I was in that administration, I'd be telling Joe Biden that, you know, Korea is important, but, you know, getting the pandemic under control, trying to figure out what we're going to do with the national debt and not having a debt crisis are bigger problems. But you do have to, to give that some bandwidth in terms of trying to figure out what's next. Um, I, I think the challenge right here, Sal, to be very honest with you and my conservative friends hate when I say this, and it's, it's cost me considerably professionally, the North Koreans are never going to give up their nuclear weapons. Never, never, never going to happen. Um, and I think the Biden administration realizes that. And I think that informs their approach in policy. Um, they were supposed to be, Sal, if you go back to January of last year, uh, a, you know, a policy review where the, the Biden administration was going to review the North Korea approach, excuse me, the beginning of this year, um, and come up with a whole new policy. Well, if you really deep down and dive in what they did, they never rolled out a policy. In fact, the, how the policy was rolled out was Jen Psaki walked in the back of the press pool of Air Force One. Somebody asked her about North Korea and she's like, oh yeah, we have a North Korea policy now and here it is. And you know, our policy essentially is we're gonna try and talk to the North Koreans and we're open to talk with them anytime and we'll talk about any issue they wanna talk about. Oh, but oh yeah, they still have to fully denuclearize. That's not really a policy. Uh, there was never a policy rollout. There was never a policy paper. Um, the administration never rolled out anything to, to allies or partners or friends. Instead, what they did, Sal, is they leaked a whole bunch of quotes to the Washington Post and the Washington Post essentially took them to task because they never rolled anything out. So here we are. I mean, the Biden administration doesn't really have any sort of policy except let's talk. It's not really a policy, to be honest with you. I mean, a lot of people had problems with Donald Trump, which I, I understand, but 
at least the man you understood where he was going with North Korea. He wanted the full denuclearization of North Korea for all sanctions relief. That was obviously not going to happen. I think that policy would have matured in the second Trump administration, but you at least understood what the policy was. With, with the Biden team, there, there really isn't one, to be honest with you. And, you know, reflective of the age we're in and, and when pandemics are more important than, you know, the geostrategic problems of the Korean Peninsula. But as I think the months and years roll on, I think they're going to really see that as a mistake. And I, I think it's going to come back to haunt them. We're close to wrapping up, but one of our viewers, David, has an interesting question in the chat that had never struck me before. He asks, besides China and Russia, who is North Korea's next closest ally? That is a really good question, to be honest with you. They do have diplomatic relations with quite a few countries. I mean, all the embassies are closed right now. Um, Vietnam could be like a distant third, to tell you the truth. I mean, they have had robust relations with them. Um, Kim Jong-un actually went on a a tour of Hanoi when he was there during the second summit with uh, Donald Trump and wanted to get a lot more information about, you know, the the Vietnamese model of economic development. But yeah, that's, that's, and that's, you know, that's a distant third. So yeah, that's, that's about as far as it goes. Maybe Cuba, but I don't think they really have you know, those relations have dipped quite a bit too. There's not a lot of communist countries left out there. So yeah, their their picking order is pretty slim these days. Well, with friends like those, huh? Um, Before I let you go, I have to pin you down on what I consider the single most important issue on North Korea, which is, and I'm going to ask you directly here, Harry Kazianis, does North Korea really have a nuclear weapon? You know, you're fair to ask this, and I know people will, will probably bust you up. So to, for, the, for, for our viewership out there today, what Sal's referring to is a piece he wrote in National Interest a few years ago posing this question, and he had great arguments. He really did. Um, yes, Sal, they have nuclear weapons, and, and the reason I say that is because there's too much anecdotal evidence to suggest that they do, but to be honest with you, your, your question is fair. I mean, think about it just from the economics. North Korea's economy is worth something like 15 or $19 billion dollars one third the size of my home state of Rhode Island, which is the smallest state in the United States, or to to give even more context, one third the size of Ethiopia's economy. So anybody would be fair to ask that question, how does this puny little country that can't even feed its own people have nuclear weapons? Well, they have them because, you know, like I said before, they invest 20% of that economy into their military. They lie, cheat, steal, and and grab every piece of technology they possibly can. There was great reporting in the New York Times a few years ago that showed how much technology and missile technology they pulled out of Ukraine. When the Soviet Union collapsed in the 1990s, they brought tons of nuclear scientists over from the Soviet Union and pulled all of that research out of what they could from the old Soviet archives. In fact, that's why so many North Korean missiles look just like the latest generation of what the Soviet Union was putting out at the end of the 1980s. I mean, the Soviet scientists built all that for them. So they do have nuclear weapons, unfortunately. Sorry to burst your bubble. (laughs) Well, Harry, there's also lots of anecdotal evidence that I'm a great intellectual, but I haven't seen anything firm yet. So so who knows? Uh, Harry Kazianis, who is in fact a great intellectual, thank you very much for being our guest today on On Liberty. Thank you, Sal. Appreciate it.
Thanks also to our producer, Nico Malian. Our executive producer is Max Hawk Weaver. The director of the CIS is Tom Switzer. This is our final show for the year, but don't worry, over the summer, Rob Forsyth will be keeping you company. His podcast, Liberalism in Question, has already gotten started. Check out his first episode with Henry Ergus. Thanks everyone for watching, and you can find us next year on On Liberty.